Well, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. This is the podcast that takes a deeper look at the current administration, helping you translate Trump and understand Trump. Coming up on this episode, we'll speak with John Sununu, John Sununu Sr., the former governor of New Hampshire and former chief of staff under President H.W. Bush. Did a lot of work with Governor Sununu when I was drug czar and he was chief of staff to the president. We'll take a look at the landscape of the issues of the day. He's a very smart guy. Then I'll ask him about the job, chief of staff. What is it? What are the challenges that he faced or that General Kelly faces now? Also, we'll have Brian Kennedy. He's the president of the American Strategy Group. We'll talk to him about the high amount of turnover at the White House. Is it chaos or is this exaggerated by the press? But before we get to the discussions with Governor Sununu and President Kennedy of uh, the American Strategy Group, let me just rant, that's what we call it, rant a bit, talk a bit mm-hmm. about things with Claude Jennings. Claude, uh, first of all, I just uh, have to mention, I'll do this at the end of the, this rant, but uh, Claude Jennings and I were in North Carolina uh, last week. And, right. Um, you got to play a little golf. I Had a play, great so, time. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. And uh, on the way back, we... Uh, Past the uh, a U a UMBC bus, <laughs> University of Maryland Baltimore campus, uh, University of Maryland uh, Baltimore County. Yep, UMBC. Baltimore County. Yeah. Uh huh. And uh, you spotted it, and uh, we pulled up and waved. It wasn't the players, but it was some fans. Right, players. I guess had to stay. They had one more game in they Charlotte. Had yeah, and ended up lost. being one. Yeah. More game. But uh, we'll have some comments on that unbelievable upset, <laughs> and I will tell you why. Uh, It is so unbelievable. Epic proportions. Epic proportions. But before we get to the epical story of (laughs) University of Maryland, Baltimore County, funny, I still get it wrong, as famous as they are, as big as this was. Well, you're not the only one. I mean, like I said, we'll talk about it, but folks are like, where is this school? What is... I know. I was was watching ESPN, and the guy said, once that had happened, all sorts of reporters were running around saying, who is this UBMC? Right. University of Baltimore, you know. Anyway... (laughs) um, I also, uh, on the weekend, watched uh, 60 Minutes. They did a profile, or not a profile, but a discussion with a bunch of these kids from Parkland High School who are on this uh, crusade, mostly anti-gun crusade. Uh, And uh, they're full of uh, passion about this and righteousness and certainly listen to them. And they seem to be persevering at it. I don't agree with them on some things. I think they really want to ban, essentially ban all rifles that look like AR-15s or AR-15s. Uh, and I don't think you can do that consistent with the Second Amendment or should. But um, it's interesting to see their um, their conviction, their passion. I just wonder if anybody's talking to them, explaining things to them, taking a thoughtful point of view on the other side. They're just kind of letting them go. It looks to me like they've been unleashed to some extent. And uh, I heard a story, Claude, that one of them got a call from the president and hung up on the president. Yeah, and some language uh, has been used by a couple of them, which is uh, t- entirely inappropriate but uh, and vulgar. But I, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush because... Uh, some of these kids are just idealistic and want the world to change, and sure, and the world should change. But let's remember, this thing happened, um, and we can talk about all sorts of causation, but this thing happened largely because all sorts of warning signs were ignored, all sorts of signals were ignored, all sorts of precautions which were put in, stop gaps, brakes, you know, were just overridden. Everything from police warnings to FBI warnings to uh, guidance counselors and, and others. Um, and if anybody had picked up on this, things they should have, it could have been prevented. One thing I was thinking is, why is it that everyone retreats kind of to their own corners? We hear you on gun control. I understand where you're coming from. But let's add to that 
the fact that there were several warning signs that uh, no one took heed to, or at least not to the extent to where um, they could have stopped this, and make it all part of one thing. Why is it that everyone champions their own passion or their own preference? Theoretically, um, the joining of all issues, which is what you're talking about in a thoughtful way, was to be the reason for the CNN town hall meeting. But that turned into, because it's television, it turned into a television show, a theatrical and dramatic performance. And this is part of the problem with the media. People know they're in front of the camera, and so, you know, the performance factor gets in there. But, you know, I I have to say that the young people succeeded to this extent, if you want to give them credit for it. I think the whole country deserves credit. The president deserves credit, which is a conversation. The conversation is going on. Uh, there is some legislation, uh, and uh, and we shall see. I, I keep coming back to what I said last time, which is uh, these should not be the only places that are gun-free zones. And every school, I know the budgets are have got the money, can put uh, a couple of security officers inside the school. And um, another thing is the size of these schools are just too big. They're just too big. Um, I was watching TV the other day, and they had uh, people from a school at, near New York, in New York City area, 5,000 kids. You oh. know, just too many. Right. And so, I, I think that affects things even more than just safety. I sure, mean, anonymity. Education. Yeah, I mean, education, oh, yeah. anonymity, yeah. So anyway, um, you know, I, I, remember, I remember hearing from, a, from a, a doctor who said, when I ask a patient questions, I'm not interested in his ideas about the cure. I'm really interested in hearing the symptoms. I think it's interesting to listen to these young people to find out what's on their minds and to take their proposals seriously, but not to take their proposals as the word of God. And because they're young and idealistic and care, we have to do what they say. Also, I think, you know, there's a tendency or or wish to kidnap uh, or hijack some of this. Uh, These kids got big donations from Hollywood and so on. You know what that's about. It's a big anti-gun crusade. Okay, Uh, let's move on. Um, The thing that got me all weekend I just uh, focused on was this firing of uh, Andrew McCabe, deputy director of the FBI, for his pension uh, kicked in. First of all, can we deal with something very straightforward first? Heard a number of people saying, well, this was punitive. Of course it was punitive. Punitive is the same root as punishment. So if you're going to punish somebody, it's tautological to say it was punitive, you know. (laughs) I mean, why why are you taking a scolding tone with me? Because I'm scolding you, you know. Right. (laughs) No, exactly. Look, I I haven't seen the facts. And somebody said the other day, it was my Trey Gowdy or somebody, you know, McCabe is arguing back saying that, you know, in a very political statement, he reacted to the the president uh, saying this was the president's doing. Uh, the president had him fired, and this is very political. The president didn't have him fired. I don't think anybody thinks the president told the Office of Professional Responsibility at the Justice Department what to do, or the Office of the Inspector General at the Justice Department what to do. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't the president. It was those offices making this recommendation to the Attorney General, which he took. The president agrees with it and might have been quieter, but this is the tweet thing again, because the more he talks about it, the more it plays into the scenario that he had it ordered. Oh, he's so delighted with it, he must have done it. But uh, but he didn't do it. Now, I was saying Trey Gowdy. Trey Gowdy, I think it was, if not, it was somebody else, said uh, if McCabe thinks he was so unjustly dealt with, politically dealt with, he can waive his privacy rights, and we can see the report, the full report of the Office of Professional Responsibility of Justice, full report of the Inspector General, which I guess we will see pretty soon, and then we can evaluate it for on its own, uh, by ourselves. But um, it looks like this guy you know, lacked candor or lied under oath, 
and uh, that's a serious uh, that's a serious matter. But boy, did this thing blow up! I mean, you had John Brennan just going crazy, former CIA director, and just saying, you know, this will destroy you, and we will get you. I mean, the gloves are off. This this was a a, a big moment, and um, we'll see what happens. But uh, this this is to be continued. A lot of talk this week about. Uh, you know, whether the president tends to fire Mueller, I don't think he does. I think one of his lawyers, John Dowd, went a little off uh, in, in, in suggesting that in a statement. He then corrected the statement. Um, I'll go back to Trey Gowdy again, for whom, you know, I have a lot of respect. You know, Mr. President, if you're, you know, innocent of, you know, what uh, what Democrats are saying, act like you are. Let the investigation go on. And I think, uh, I think it should, and it will. Hopefully we're nearing the end of it. Looks like no collusion. So now it looks like the focus is on obstruction on the whole russia thing let me just say this this has been hinted at glancing comments um, side comments on tv but taking russia seriously trump has uh, the president trump has taken russia more seriously than barack obama did and these latest comments by nikki haley at the un and others suggest uh, suggest this and the sanctions uh it wasn't donald trump who laughed at mitt romney during the Romney-Obama uh, debate, right. when Romney said greatest geopolitical threat in the near future will be Russia. And you remember uh, Obama scoffed at him. And do we all remember that picture of that large red button, the large red reset button? Yep. Hillary Clinton <laughs> talking to Lavrov, you know, the Putin's minister there. We're going to reset our relations with Russia. That's what the, Clinton, or the Obama administration was going to do through the person of Secretary Clinton. Uh, it wasn't Donald J. Trump who whispered to Medvedev, Medvedev, in that interim period where Putin, those few months where Putin wasn't president of Russia. <laughs> uh, he's been elected again with ah, 67% of the vote. What do you know? Thought, uh, yeah. Who the heck votes against wow. him? And do they have their names? I'm sure they do. Oh, sure. Terrible. But um, it wasn't uh, Donald J. Trump who whispered to Medvedev, uh, when I get my second term, we'll be able to you know, work more closely together. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And we'll be able to work things out, whatever that general comment was. So, uh, you know, you can't uh, invidiously compare Trump to Obama in terms of uh, in terms of Russia. And um, we shall see. Uh, one last thing uh, before we get to some, um, we called it epical already, the uh, the sports thing. But right. while we're still in serious business, the president uh, heading to New Hampshire as we uh, speak uh, uh, to talk about the opioid epidemic. And I'll be speaking about this, probably doing some TV shots and, and all. But I hope they get it right. I hope it's a comprehensive plan. I hope they do focus on the supply side. We have never been able to reduce drug use in this country unless we focus on the supply of what's out in the street. I think the president instinctively understands this. I just hope the bureaucrats and the HHS don't make this all treatment. I am for treatment. I'm for more treatment. I'm for more effective treatment. And that's the key effective treatment because success rates in treatment are very very low but um, we'll all know more about this at the time and i was surprised this. to hear how uh low effective rates are in recovery treatment programs 15, i was i mean i was blown away 15 20 percent that's unbelievably yeah. low yeah. wow yeah yeah all right a couple of things that are uh, not so consequential unless you're a huge sports fan right up there with the uh, epical upsets uh, i'd love to hear your list but I agree with the list that was on, I think, ESPN or Fox Sports. Um, right up there with Joe Namath, which yep. is my favorite upset mm-hmm. one, beating the Colts. <laughs> I was in law school, and I, I didn't take points. I just said the Jets will win, and I got like 20 to 1. There you odds, go. You know, on 10 bucks and <laughs> $200 meant a lot when I was That's in school. Yeah. Anyway, um, Jets went over the Colts in Super Bowl three. 
Am, am I right about that? Super Bowl three, I think that's right. Um, and then um, a miracle on ice. Buster Douglas beating um, Mike Tyson. Mm-hmm. And uh, University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Yes. Not Baltimore campus. Right. <laughs> uh, beating University of Virginia. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, first of all, the obvious thing. First time ever in NCAA history, March Madness, has a number 16 seed beaten a number one seed. Correct. Correct. Uh, and, this, and they were the number one overall seed. They just weren't the number one seed in a region. Right. Number one overall. Right. Period. Number one overall. Number one wow. in the country. AP right. number one. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's one thing. So, first time a 16 seed beat a number one seed. How many times had the number one seed beaten the number 16 seed? Do you know? Uh, I think you do. I do because I helped some of the research. But, yes, 135 times. Right. So the record of six, mm-hmm. number 16 teams against number one teams was zero and 135. Exactly. Until the mighty UMBC retrieved. UMBC. University of Maryland, Baltimore, Connecticut. I keep yeah. repeating this. And, yes, that was Super Bowl three. by the way, the name of it. It was. Yeah. Right. Two months ago, UMBC lost to Albany, not a powerhouse. Not exactly an NCAA powerhouse. 83 to 39. <laughs> and then they beat the number one team in the country. It took a buzzer beater win over Vermont for UMBC to even get into the tournament. And Vermont had beaten them twice and I think 23 times in a row. <laughs> right. Exactly. And it was a miracle they were even there. And when they were there, they beat them by what, 20 points? Yep. yep. Okay. This is one I didn't know you found. Ticket, you tell you tell the audience. Tickets so, for the game before the game. Right, yeah. So apparently just hours before the game, you could get a ticket for $10. Right. See history. Did they fill the hall? I don't know. I don't know. what. It, you know. Well, I'll tell you, the number of people going to claim they were there will be like five <laughs> times the capacity of the hall. Right. UVA's defense only allowed 53 points per game on average in the ACC. In this game, UMBC scored 53 in the wow. second half. One half of basketball. No team has scored 70 points on UVA, and um, UMBC got 74. There you go. A month ago, UVA held Pittsburgh to seven first-half points, points, and 37 total points in the game. And against this powerhouse, quote, powerhouse, close quote, UMBC, they gave up 74. Yeah. So obviously, UMBC was marching all the way to the title. However... Mm-hmm. In the second round, they played Kansas State, <laughs> not nearly as highly ranked as UVA, and got beat pretty soundly. Yeah, yeah. And what was a close game until maybe the final two minutes or so? They just yeah. could. They pulled yeah. in a couple times yeah. within two yeah. and one point. They just couldn't couldn't pull away. So that's the story. It goes down sports history. But I mean, a great season for them, right? I mean, you go in, you make history. Well, that's a success. It's great, yeah. great life for them exactly. as athletes. You know, I was on the UMBC team. It's going to be about. 80 guys claiming that, too. Right. <laughs> I went to UMBC. Yeah, I played on that team. Yeah, with I went to exactly. UMBC on that team. But right. there's a lot of uh, upsets. I mean, Virginia's not the only team that most folks thought would make the Sweet 16. Since, oh, I heard. Since Mrs. Like to, Bennett is not in earshot, you want to talk about one of those uh, upsets? Oh, right, North Carolina. I yeah, mean, they're right, out. Yeah, yeah, we don't mention that. Michigan State's out. Around the house. Yeah. Xavier's out. Yeah, Michigan State's had Xavier's out. Yeah. I heard this morning on the news, this morning being Monday, that there are no more perfect brackets. Oh, there can't be. In the country. No more perfect brackets. And there's no bracket where anyone has the Sweet 16 pick correctly either. Right. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> UMBC did it. Crazy. 
Crazy. All right, I have a totally irrelevant question, but if we can ask our listeners, let you know the answer. I'll try my best. If you watch a lot of basketball, as I did over the last three, four days, see a lot of commercials. There's, I think, a Domino's commercial. I think it's Domino's, where they're sitting and watching a game, and this woman pushes a button on her shoe, athletic shoe, and that orders a pizza. Have you seen this? <laughs> Haven't seen it. Who? How the heck do you order a pizza by pushing a button on your running shoe? Who wouldn't want that, right? Yeah. And how do you know how many times? And how do you specify pepperoni? And uh, well, it's all GPS technology. Uh, well, that's well, they know what that's you a want. non-answer. Right. I mean, that's oh well. That's well, maybe technology. you get it built into your shoe. You know, what do you? I will build what into your well, shoe. Well, so I like pizza, but I I only like well, I don't only, but I prefer pepperoni and pineapples on my pizza. Okay, do you really? Yeah. So if I had a button on my shoe There's right not now, anyone else with that bracket in America right. either. <laughs> pepperoni and pineapple pizza bracket. So right. if I had a button on my shoe, it would it would just be pepperoni and pineapple. And so I would That's push it. That's not the question. How do you set a button on your shoe to say pepperoni and pizza? Oh, that's all technology. I mean, well, that's see, you're you're going in just, circles, man. <laughs> that's oh, that's all smart people do. Yeah. yeah okay. I just push the button. <laughs> okay. Somebody explain to me how that works, please. We got. We'll get an email. We'll, work, we'll Yeah. It. Bill Bennett podcast at gmail dot com for the answer about the people. Okay. Video. Okay. Uh, back to things. Look, I, I we took a lot of time on you, NBC. Serious matters before the country. Um, existential crises before the country. Um, we're trying to keep up with all the issues. Uh, we will be talking about um, next week uh, a couple of amazing things, too, um, that I've been reading about. Uh, our friend, I just want to mention, our friend Joel Farkas sent me an article about, you may remember on this show we talked about uh, with Mark Krikori in the Center for Immigration Studies about how the immigration lobby or the immig- illegal immigration lobby was now the most powerful part of the liberal cohort. Trump's everything else. Excuse Trump as a verb. This article that he sent me points out that so much damage is done by illegals, undocumented aliens, coming across the border to the environment, that if the Sierra Club and others were inclined to make an objection, they were shut up by the pro-environmental lobby. Wow. People crossing over vehicle tracks all over these national park areas, preserves, human waste, garbage, all sorts of things. And one of the conclusions of this, and I sent this on to our friends at uh, EPA, is that the wall that the president's proposing could actually improve the environment because it will keep this kind of stuff from happening. But we'll tell the story more fully next time about how um, the Sierra Club was just smothered, slapped down, and any objections it might have had to illegal immigration because of the damage illegal immigration was doing to the to the environment uh, by the uh, pro-illegal immigration lobby. Wow. Isn't that interesting? That's be interesting. Yeah, I can't wait to hear that. Yeah, that'll be interesting. So, uh, a lot going on. Um, uh, apparently, one last thing, apparently Pompeo, Mike Pompeo is, um, although not confirmed, and he's going to have a tough hearing, as is Gina Haspel for CIA, um, is in charge of the negotiations on the meeting with Kim Jong-un. So that'll be interesting. Um, he's a very smart guy, very impressive. He's got to be confirmed. Although, you know, there's some concern on the part of McCain. And Rand Paul has already indicated, you know, he's pro- he's a no vote. Oh, wow. So they got to get a couple of... 
I think they have Feinstein. I think Feinstein has indicated her yes vote for Haspel, Gina Haspel, anyway. We shall see. Uh, let's get to our interview. Let's talk to Governor Sununu. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. All right, let's get started with John Sununu, former governor of New Hampshire and former chief of staff under President George H.W. Bush. John, how are you today? Bill, how are you? I've been fine. You claim that I was difficult, as the drugs are. Uh, Bill, we were both warm and charming. Okay, okay, okay. I remember once you picked up and said, not you again. And then, (laughs) what's the problem today, you said, right? But we got a lot done, didn't we? We, And that's what counted. You know, we did get a lot done, and I am so angry when people say, you know, there's nothing you can do. We pushed back. I I give people the numbers, you know. uh, Thanks to the leadership of President Bush, and you had a hand in this as well. We pushed back. We got the numbers down. Uh, In 1992, uh, when he left office, uh, drug use was down 60%, 70% from what it, it's high in 1979. Yeah. He made it a priority. No. And I, you know, I was I was so pleased that he did. I wondered whether he'd, you know, take me under his wing, and he did, and pushed it forward. Of course, you talked me into taking the job. You remember that? Well, I do, and and I'm so happy you did take it. And 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 I think the credit uh, really does uh, go to to the president for pushing the program you put together through. You brought in the private sector as a partnership. You focused on treatment. You focused on enforcement, and you focused on education yeah. of the young people as to what the serious problems were. And, and the private sector was a key part of that education program. And, uh, yeah. and and I think that's what has to happen. You need all three legs there. You got it. And, you and, got uh, it. and it's important. Uh, look, we, we, we had the advantage of working for a great president who, who in four years... Uh, uh, passed more meaningful legislation than uh, anybody else except Lyndon Johnson and Franklin Roosevelt on top of all his great foreign policy achievements. So it, it was a satisfying time because things were accomplished. Let's stay with this problem for a minute because it's, uh, are we talking to you from New Hampshire? Are you in New Hampshire? Yes, I am. Okay. I'm uh, in snowy Hampton Falls, New Hampshire. Beautiful. About inches on the front lawn. Beautiful. We, uh, when I went up uh, during the campaign season this last time, uh, and I was, you know, up there to, you know, to do my radio show and talk to, about politics, all anybody in Manchester could talk to me about was the drug problem and how bad it was and how bad it still is. And I, you know, just recently was looking over medical examiner reports for certain states, New Hampshire, West Virginia, Ohio. And it's awful. And people misunderstand now. I mean, there's, there's, you know, some important things to be said critically about some of these pharma companies. But right now, in your state and other states, the main problem is the stuff on the street. It's the fentanyl and the heroin. It's terrible. And, and at the risk of offending our neighbors to the south, uh, it, it comes up from Massachusetts. There are two or three cities down yeah. there that are run by a group out of uh, the Caribbean uh, and, and, and Mexico and the, and, and the Dominican Republic in particular. Yeah. You know, you clean them out and, and you uh, they just refresh. Yeah. And uh, it's a serious problem. One of the things that, that New Hampshire is trying to do under the leadership uh, of a great governor yeah. uh, is is try and help folks that go through rehab find their, their place back in the private sector with jobs. And, and, and uh, Governor Sununu, uh, uh, 
who has come from good breeding stock. Uh, <laughs> He's a fine mother, fine mother, a wonderful woman. <laughs> Uh, is working with the businesses to set up uh, core groups in a number of businesses up here where they provide in-business support and, and, and literally go out aggressively to, to bring folks that have successfully completed their rehab process and give them a job because uh, the, the governor and, and the folks up here found that a lot of folks would, would get off uh, their addiction and then... Uh, not be able to get back into society and fall back into the trap. Yeah. And and that program is, is really uh, beginning to take hold and, and make a little bit of a difference up here. You know, it's such a complex problem. you got to deal with it uh, from all ends. Yeah. No, that's right. And I think you were right in what you, you said, uh, you know, all three parts, education and prevention, uh, treatment, and the law enforcement part. And obviously, you mentioned the... Caribbean gr- uh, groups and cartels and gangs and it's going on in Massachusetts and you got to you got to do that. The, yeah, I think the kind of program your son Governor Sununu is uh, also John, right? John. Uh, uh, no, Christopher. That's Christopher. Christopher. How many are there? Eight kids, five boys, three girls. How many governors so far? Uh, just. Myself and Chris. Uh, John was a senator. Oh, I know that. No, I was going to do that count separately. I knew. That. Okay. <laughs> all right. It's very, very good. Well, yeah, what's all this stuff about the Kennedys? It's the Sununus. We should be doing specials on, my God. <laughs> Wonderful. Better values, too. A lot better values. Uh, yeah, values do count, Bill. You know that? Yeah, We've been yeah. very, very lucky. You and I um, have been lucky that way, that, that yes. values make a difference. Yes, yes. Married well and, I think, raised our kids well. And if my kids yeah. are as successful as your kids, I'll be very happy. But I, I wanted to come back to, to the to the successful treatment program. You're absolutely right. It's so important that we give these folks good opportunities because the success rate is is low. I mean, not that many people successfully complete and stay off drugs, which is, the, you know, the main reason to have the prevention and education. You fall into this trap, it's very hard to get out. But for those who do, we got to welcome them with open arms. It's a hell of a struggle internally. That I learned, you know, uh, when you yeah. know, when I got my spurs in that in that drug czar job. And this opioid crisis is insidious, as you pointed out, the fentanyls and the heroin coming in here. Uh, and and there is a serious number, of, a serious percentage of the people who are addicted who start on the opioids with a legitimate reason yeah. for a pain treatment That's right. reason. That's right. But it is it is amazing how this stuff grabs a hold of you. Yeah, no, it, it it is. And I remember having that explained to me. And I remember the president, George Herbert Walker Bush, and I talking about it because he was so, you know, he was so, in addition to everything else, he was so intellectually curious. I remember he called me once on, on my birthday, and I was in North Carolina at the beach, and he had just visited Covenant House in New York. You might have been with him on that trip. Yeah. And he said, yeah. Bill, I just talked to a guy who's 19, and he's getting out. And I asked him what his plans were for his life. And he said, well, you know, I figure I'll live two, three more years. And he said, I just, he said, it just knocked me over. The thought of a 19-year-old saying my, you know, I think my life expectancy is two or three years, so I'm going to make the most of it. He said, I just had to have to talk to you. This is what this stuff does to you, the brain and the mind and, you know, enslaves yeah. the soul. And it just, uh, 
you know, it, it really made an impression on the president. He called me. I was so touched that he thought of me to talk to him about it. You know, Bill, it's one of the problems the country has that resources and money can make a difference on. You know, a lot of times people are looking right. to spend money here, spend money there on things that, that money is not the key to success, really. Right. But the drug problem is one in terms of enforcement, uh, in terms of education, and in terms of, of support in the job sector. And uh, and and I just hope that uh, that Congress recognizes that they've got to help some of the states uh, with what is a national problem, not a state problem. Boy, I wish I had that quote you just laid out when I came to see you and asked you for more money over and over and over and over. <laughs> you said that's it. That's all we're doing. Oh, you guys were good. You were very generous. But you know, you made a point too. You remember the partnership. You mentioned the private sector. You remember Jim yes. Burke and the partnership? I do. Jim has passed away, but he was a catalyst of a very important part of what you put in place and and uh, is one of these unsung heroes in terms of uh, heroes that do the country well. Right. Those ads, uh, jumping off a diving board into an empty swimming pool, two fried eggs in a pan, this is your brain on drugs. Yeah. You know, it made a difference, and, and those guys could do it. Remember, he recruited all the great advertising agencies. And I hope that's part of, you know, this, this president's initiative, too, because this one right now, John, is worse um, than what we were facing. It's worse, more extensive, and it's, and it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It, that, that's the, the point, that this is not a, a blue-collar process. This is, this is white-collar and blue-collar. It, it cuts across all economic lines. It cuts across all cultural lines. And as I said, in many cases, it, it has started uh, with people using opioids right. for a legitimate reason, that's for right. a pain problem, and then, frankly, losing control. Um, that's what we have found in terms of looking at the data. Uh, uh, it is surprising how many uh, people become addicts innocently, if you will, rather than uh, doing something that they shouldn't have done. Let's talk about uh, politics and the politics of politics. I know you've been asked about this a lot. You were chief of staff to President Bush. Um, a lot of talk about General Kelly. A lot of talk about chaos. Uh, give me your just your, your general read uh, on this. Um, compare and contrast, if you if you want. But uh, how much of this are we to take seriously and believe about the quote chaos in the White House? Look, people have to understand the White House is a place where every tiny little wart gets magnified to look like a mountain. And uh, I think Kelly has done a good job. I, I actually think Priebus did a very good job in transitioning the process for mm -hmm. the president. And in, and in doing that, you burn capital. A chief of staff burns political capital for the president. Right. Good comment. Chief of staff usually lasts between 9, 10, 11 months. Um, and so it, it, people shouldn't be surprised that they some eventually burn out because you really have to do the things that people don't like having done. Uh, control the schedule, control access to the president, uh, put pressure on the congressional liaison people to get legislation done, go down to Congress and twist arms for the president. And I, I think it goes with the nature of the job that, that you you uh, end up burning political capital, your own political capital, for the sake of the president. Uh, and, and so uh, it's not surprising that Kelly has come under fire for having done things well. Uh, I hope he stays. Uh, I think he's done a good job, and I think he's become uh, a lot more capable as, as, as you go into that job. You mm -hmm. learn the personality you have to deal with, and you learn how to do it. So um, I, I don't think it's as chaotic as the press likes to make it sound like. 
I, I do remind people that the job of a chief of staff is whatever the president tells you the job is. I think uh, President Trump's White House is actually doing a lot better than the press is giving it credit for, but they like to make it look awful. Yeah, and also you, what you just said, let me pick up on that. It's what the president, the job of chief of staff is what the president says it is. And also the, uh, the chief of staff and the White House bears the mark and imprint of the president, right, and the president's style. Uh, I was asked about right. this the other day, and I said, well, you know, they, there's a lot of impulsive and spontaneous actions. This is a very spontaneous and impulsive guy. So, uh, yep. you know, not surprising he's acting acting out his character. So that makes a difference. You dealt with a president who had a very different kind of manner and mode, right? Oh, yeah. And look, uh, uh, just a slight modification of what you said, the, the, the chief of staff reflects the president the way the president wants him to reflect it. And a lot of people talked about President George Herbert Walker Bush and, and myself as chief of staff as a good cop, bad cop combination. And which were and, you? Uh, Time magazine said I was the bad cop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't. Do I get to vote on this? Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> you mean I was the really bad cop? <laughs> you were very funny, though. You had your charm. I must. You know the Irish definition of charm, John. Do you know that? The, no. The capacity to elicit the answer yes before the question is asked. Isn't, isn't, well, isn't that's, that's what I tried to do. <laughs> <laughs> I I would pick up the phone. You had no prefatory or introductory remarks. I would pick up the phone, and because I tell people, you know, my kids were raised in the Beltway. They're Beltway babies. It's a true story. I tell people all the time. The first word was mama. Second word was dada. John Bennett's third word was sanu nu 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 because you because know, <laughs> it's a wonderful name for a kid, you know, because it repeats, right? But yeah. But, yeah. but but it was Sununu. Elaine would say Sununu. Governor Sununu's on the phone. I go, oh God, oh Lord, and I'd pick it up, and you would say, "What have you done? What were you possibly thinking?" Or something like that. Uh, anyway. Yeah, but it, you know, <laughs> one of the keys to the Bush White House was that we were all real friends. Yeah, I know. And, and 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 that's the only way you can talk to friends like that, and they understand that you're pulling on the same end of the rope they are. Yeah, no, that's and, right. Uh, and I really uh, I give you as the first drug czar tons of credit for having defined how this process has to be moved. Well, thank you. No, but you uh, you gave me the the room, and you I know you whispered the president's ear, and I knew uh, went in the inaugural when he said, you know, and I will back my my drugs are bill bennett uh that was the captain of the ship putting his arm around me saying you know you're okay and i remember you said you echoed what he said you got to deal with all these departments and these powerful cabinet agencies you have problems getting it done you give me a call and i i didn't call often but i called a couple times and you were there and the president was there. And that, you know, yeah, that meant thanks. I could get my job done. That meant I could get my job done. The important thing beyond getting the job done is I really think we had fun. Yeah, we did. And, and remember our dear friend who's no longer with us, Jack Kemp. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was uh, quite a cornerstone of conservatives that we had there. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know. Yeah, Jack and I, we were your kind of delinquents. But uh, we did we did, we did okay. We did okay. We did. Free thinkers. Um, but uh, no, those were, those were good times. Let me ask you. Serious question about this, because this style of this president is very different from the style of the president you served. Um, some of the policies of this president are different. 
As I've watched you and listened to you, I've been very impressed with your very thoughtful, usually defense of President, President Trump. But these are different, very different guys. And l- let me ask you the hard question. You know, he says, I'm challenging the swamp. I'm challenging the establishment. When people think establishment and Republican establishment, they think Bush and Bushes. Um, is he a challenge to the Bush uh, establishment? Is this a rebuke? Uh, how do you how do you support both men at the same time or well, different periods of time, obviously? But how do you reconcile this in your own mind? What the criteria is, uh, is the country going to be better off for what the individual does? Mm-hmm. And, and I think the country was hugely better off for what George Herbert Walker Bush did. And I think the country is better off for what uh, Donald J. Trump has done. Uh, the, the tax bill, to me, is a huge, huge, it's a generational step forward. Uh, people think it's just another piece of legislation. It took 30 years to get that done. And I think that's extremely significant. I think what he's done on regulation is significant. Mm -hmm. He just has a a very frustrating style at times for people who like governing to be a more orderly process. But it's his style. And uh, get over it. That's the way he's going to function. Look for the results that he gets with his style. You know, the New York Yankees used to have a relief pitcher named Ryan Duran. Ryan Duran used to wear glasses that were about three quarters of an inch thick, and he would come in and uh, to relieve, and, and he had his warm-up pitches. And the first warm-up pitch he would throw into the stands, the second one into the dirt, the third one left, the fourth one right. The batter would think this guy has absolutely no control, and he threw about a 102-mile-an-hour fastball. So the guy would get in there and, and just could never get a toehold because he was scared this guy was as wild yeah. as hell. But that was that was all done deliberately by Durant, and and then he slipped three quick ones down the middle. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, to me, I think the president operates with what I call the Ryan Duran theory of politics. And, and, and he looks wild, but when it comes time to executing, uh, he does pretty well. Yes, he does. He does do pretty Is he changing the nature of conservatism? Is he redefining it? He is getting conservative results with paths that sometimes make real conservatives cringe, but they are happy when they get to the end of the uh, end of yeah. the line. Yeah. The one thing that I'm having difficulty with, and I'm, I'm I'm dying to see how it works out, is this whole trade concept yeah. that that. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I suspect you and I are both free traders. Uh, I, I am, and and yet I do understand what he's trying to do. Uh, as much as I am uh, opposed to the idea of, of trade wars and tariffs, uh, I do understand that our friends have abused us for a long time, and he wants to bring them to the table and, and get to free and fair trade. Um, so uh, I'm willing to hold my breath for a while and see how this thing works out. Uh, but the trade issue is one that I think makes us, uh, as conservatives, nervous. And uh, But what he did with the tax issue tells me that uh, I should wait and see what the result is. Seems to be narrowing as we speak. Uh, Larry Kudlow's coming in, and Larry Kudlow is uh, definitely a, a free trader, uh, and uh, th- that's right. an interesting, interesting choice. But there could be a convergence as look, a number of countries are getting ex- exceptions. This could come down to a kind of mano a mano, one on one, U.S. and China. Yeah. That's where the real problem is, isn't it? Yeah, it is, and I think. 
that's why I think there's sort of a rationality to this. Uh, uh, and, you know, people are throwing statistics about uh, how much steel comes from Canada and how much comes from Mexico, but they forget the fact that steel is fungible like money. And, and China sends Canada a lot of steel and sends Mexico a lot of steel, and a lot of steel ends up coming up in here. So uh, yeah. it may be coming from Mexican factories, but it means that the Mexicans have used uh, the Chinese steel on their own projects and are exporting uh, what they produce themselves. So, so this thing is much more complicated uh, than than uh, yeah. people uh, traditionally sure. who have traditionally looked at trade policy. Uh, it's a different world with with the capacity to ship, to produce, and and to invest in different countries. And and so I'm waiting to see how this. Thing works out, uh, but you're right. He's he's giving his conservatives a little bit of a nervous time on some issues. Just give me a couple more minutes because I want to uh, sort of round this out. How um, the, I, I agree with you on the tax thing, and I I, I don't think things really even kicked in yet. Uh, people in business tell me that the most important part is not the uh, you know the redu- personal reduction, but the corporate reduction, and a lot of companies say for the economy. And this is something Larry Kudlow actually told me. A telephone conversation. He said this expensing thing, uh, being able to expense, you know, for the whole project, the period of the whole project, rather than spreading it out over years, is going to have a major impact. I'm not smart enough or sophisticated enough in business to to understand that. But do you agree with the general proposition that the good that's coming from this economic uh, change, the tax change, we haven't even seen the major part of it yet? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, this is this is a a change over time. It took thirty years to get. It's going to mm-hmm. take ten years to give us all the dividends uh, yeah. uh, that we're going to get out of it. Look, the only way we solve our entitlement problem is by having four four and a quarter percent growth or higher. And the only thing that's going to give us a chance to ever get to that level is this tax. Okay. What about entitlements? Will we get to them? I think so. I'm. Uh, I, I, I think um, I it's think hard. It's interest. hard politically, and he doesn't. He yeah. doesn't seem to show much interest in them. I'm a, I'm a Ryan guy. You know, Paul Ryan worked for me yeah. uh, at Empower America. He was he was he worked for Kemp and worked for me. God knows. Look, the when when Paul was not speaker, when he was just in the House, uh, there was the Ryan Sununu bill. That's right. Or fixing entitlements with my son John. That's right. Uh, it, it, uh, entitlements can be fixed. They've got to be fixed smart. You, you. Uh, I think you've got to start moving uh, uh, much more aggressively the retirement age up, because frankly, you and I are going to live to eighty-five or ninety, maybe, mm. and that was never anticipated when the retirement uh, age for Social Security was set at sixty-five, and so you got to start making adjustments for that, and people want to work longer anyway yeah so you might as well build it into sure. the law and, and and then you can put a more honest uh calculation of the cost of living increase there are two or three things that are relatively minor that make a huge difference in the process and they ought to get about doing it all right quick shot uh, question does he have to do that or something like that or infrastructure or something uh, uh, in order to save 2018 that is is the tax thing sufficient or he's uh, he's got to He's got to do more. No, I think they got to at least they got to at least show progress on infrastructure. Okay. And 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 frankly, they've got to get smarter in in uh, pointing out uh, how much of a drag 
the lack of any democratic policy agenda has been on the country. Just yeah. saying no is not. G- give me your give me your view of uh, 2018 fall. Uh, inevitable Democrat increases. I think it's going to be a surprisingly good year for Republicans. Look, let's take what just happened in Pennsylvania. I actually I keep asking people why is it that two candidates who both were pro-gun, pro-life, anti-Pelosi, and got 99% of the vote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know, people are missing the fact that the only way the Democrat did well was to espouse Republican principles. Yeah. The incumbent Democrats are not going to get away with that. Okay. And, and so you're going to have, I hope, a smarter and more aggressive Republican campaign in 18 than they would have been able to do in the special election. But it's not enough to sit on the on the tax cuts. You got to get some other stuff done, right? Oh no, yeah, yeah. they got to get it, they got to yeah. get infrastructure moving, and frankly, they got to nibble away at a couple more areas on Obamacare and, and trim that down again. They did a great job getting rid of the mandate. Now, now to start trimming away at some of the other foolish. Two more questions, quick. Um, if you were chief of staff to President Trump and he asked you before he spoke, should I sit down or offer to sit down with? Uh, President uh, or leader Kim Jong Un, would you said yes or no? Yeah, let me tell you what I think he has done by doing this. I, I, I think I would have said yes. I, I think the way he's doing it, right? People say, "Oh, this is uh, you know terrible and all that." I say, "Look, you don't understand. Um, you must, if you're going to take drastic action, you must exhaust all the possibilities." Sitting down is one of the possibilities you must exhaust before you take drastic action. So understand it in that context as well. Okay. All right. I just want to leave. Uh, I hope I've softened you up because now I have to kind of apologize. Did you hear what I said about you on Fox the other night? Oh, what would you say? Oh, well, it's not dreadful, but... Um, I hope you'll forgive me. They were, they were. Oh, oh, I did hear that. <laughs> that said that, that I was beautiful. <laughs> okay, all right. That's what you heard. That's exactly right. Okay, I was just for the sake of the audience. They were. Oh, they, this is a politically correct world, right? So they're showing. They're, they're talking about Hope Hicks. You know, as the, the yeah, I know assistant. that. I know that. Right, I remember so, that. No, no, now. but I, I got to tell the I audience. Do. So, but while they're talking about her, they don't comment on what's obvious, which is that she's breathtakingly gorgeous woman. They're, but they're showing her pictures one after the other, right out of the portfolio. You know, and they're saying, "Is this a big deal?" And I said, "You know, partly it's a big deal for reasons the media won't discuss, which is she's, you know, she's gorgeous, she's stunning. Everybody likes to hear the story, so I want to look at the pictures." And I said, "If she looked like Sununu." And then I said, or Bill Bennett, we probably... No, I thought that was great. Okay, 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 okay. Yeah. Best to you and all your family. Thank you Anytime. very much. That was John Sununu, former governor of New Hampshire and former chief of staff under President George Herbert Walker Bush. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. All right, folks, welcome back. I am delighted to talk once again to Brian Kennedy, my friend, my colleague, and my boss. He's the president of the American Strategy Group. I'm a Washington fellow of the American Strategy Group. Brian, good to have you with us again. Great to be with you, Bill. Well, you know, we wondered early on when we started this, would there be enough to talk about with Donald Trump week after week or every couple of weeks? Um, There is. (laughs) There is. Uh, Yeah, to say the least. Uh, I ran into John Roberts, you know, the Fox White House reporter. 
Right. I ran into him uh, the other day, and uh, he was very nice and known each other because we both used to work at, God forbid, CNN. And uh, he asked how I was doing. I asked, said, how are you doing? He said, 24 hours a day. <laughs> he said, I go to sleep at 1 in the morning after I file my last thing and, or do my last appearance. He said, I get up at 6, and there's news. I've missed stuff, you know. So it's it's amazing. Um, what does that speak to? I want to talk about Donald Trump and the style. I want to talk about chief of staff, turn over at the White House, then I want to turn to policy. But what does that speak to, this uh, kind of intensity and frequency of, uh, of, uh, of movement? Well, it's interesting. I mean, that's an excellent way of, uh, of framing it because you, you listen to John Roberts, and he uh, you know meets every day with good cheer, wondering what the heck's going to go on, and I think is partly entertained and eager to inform the American people about what's going on in the Trump administration and takes everything for what it is and just tries to judge it as an honest journalist. Whereas every other journalist in America, it seems quite often, has this animus for Trump. And when Trump talks about fake news, they may not like that phrase, but it, it certainly seems like fake news. And the only way for Trump to challenge that is to be part of the news cycle 24-7, the very thing that keeps John Roberts up. Yeah. Right? And, and, and if he's not part of that news cycle, the left in their animus is going to be part of the news cycle. What about the uh, – let's, let's take what, what most journalists say now, just about one piece, which is this is chaos – the White House and it's uh, you know careening out of control, which means Trump is careening out of control. It's a little different from the analysis we had before, Brian, that the president was mentally unstable. Remember that, um, right? Right. Until the doctor who gave his physical <laughs> exhaustively answered all those questions, but now it's it's chaos and never seen anything like it. Report after report. What do you make of that? Yeah, well, it's chaos because some of the more perhaps liberal parts of the administration are being put in check. And so, of course, it's, it seems like chaos. I, I think he's bringing order to the White House. Mm-hmm. Here's, here's a president who was a businessman who didn't have a political establishment around him, who turned to the Republicans. Remember, Bannon said the original sin was turning to the Republican establishment to you know staff yep. all these agencies in the White House. Here Trump is now, having gone through a year of that, done a great job over the past year, but I think realizes he doesn't have everybody around him that he would want to actually do the things he has promised to do, even though he's done many of them. So here he is now, changes out Tillerson, you know, maybe changing out other, I mean, certainly changing out other people, but, you know, more to come. And I I think that's bringing a certain kind of intellectual discipline to what he has promised to do. And he's had the experience of a year now to see what he really needs done and the current people weren't enough and now he's going to bring in i think hopefully people that are more in line with his way of thinking and i i I couldn't be happier about the direction the uh, administration is going in and far from chaos i don't want to use the word cosmos because that may never be in this administration but i think it's certainly going to be a better run and better focused administration now that Trump has put a new set of people in. Somebody asked me the other day, they said it seems so spontaneous and impulsive. And I said, yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, could be thought through as well. But there are certainly aspects of the guy's character that are spontaneous and impulsive. Therefore, he's going to act in a spontaneous and impulsive way from time to time. 
Uh, and whether there's method in his madness remains to be seen. Looks to me like I agree with you, like there is. Because I notice well, in those reports that you're talking about where they report on the chaos, they never say this, do they? Um, and it's chaotic at the White House. More turnover and more people leaving, more rumors of other people leaving. And as a result, Trump is not proposing any new initiatives, not meeting with anybody on foreign soil, not going anywhere, not doing anything. We don't hear that uh, tag to the story because there's almost too much that he's proposing to keep up with. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Now, look, I mean, is it being impulsive or decisive, right? The language does matter here. And this whole idea that Trump's a crazy man and he's going to, you know, he's just flying around the White House. That's craziness itself. And for the media to say those things, it's just an animus that belies a certain ideological bent. Not a healthy thing at all. But you can be I mean, you can be impulsive and, and deliberate in the same person. You know, impulsive about some things, deliberate about other things, right? Decisive and, and, and impulsive. I mean, his occasional tweets, I think, are impulsive. That's okay. I don't, I don't care. But I think, you know, at the same time, I believe he's really thought these things through. Uh, on the on the, on the things that matter, and um, it's okay. Um, you know, uh, people have different uh, aspects to them. Uh, the other the other thing is right. That, sure, yeah. we were just talking to John Sununu, who was a very interesting, very complimentary of uh, President Trump. And I said, yeah, you're complimentary here. You dealt with a very different president, your boss, when you were. I was talking about chief of staff things. And I said, but it's very different. He said, yeah, sure, it's different. But he said, what matters is where you're going, you know, and whether you get there. And so you can you can have certain style. I said, what's the chief of staff job? He said, the chief of staff job for a strong man like uh, like like uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, as Sununu said, or Donald Trump, though very different kinds of men in temperament, is to be whatever the president wants you to be. That's 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 what he wants with the chief of staff. Now, the reason I'm, I'm doing all this buildup is here you have Kelly, uh, General Kelly, who uh, seems, at least on the surface, to be a very different style of guy, a very different kind of person uh, than uh, than the president. Um, compatible, incompatible, I don't know. I don't really care. But, um, you know, he, he needs to reflect what the president wants to do or he'll have to go, too. Is, isn't that right? Seems to me that's right. Yeah, I think I think that is right. I, I think where some of this uh, disconnect comes is John Sununu with you know, President Bush. President Bush was running a ship of state, and even though there was a lot going on, he thought the ship of state was on the right course, and there wasn't a lot of radical things that needed to get done. Here in the Trump administration, Trump believes, and he's told the American people, he thinks a lot of things need to get done yeah. to make America great again. Yeah. And so by its very nature, that ship of state has to make this enormous correction. And that's going to create, not to okay. keep with the analogy, it's okay. going to create a lot of waves and people are going to be upset. And a guy like Kelly is a guy who doesn't make waves. But now we're in a time where you may need to make waves. And so the personality has to match the president's ambitions, which are many. That's good. That's good. I mean, you're right. I mean, I think about it. Bush and the candidacy of George Herbert Walker Bush was Reagan's two great terms, and we're going to continue that, right? And we're going to continue, you know, to take down the wall and do other things and a few other items. It was not a revolutionary agenda, uh, right. and Trump's was a revolutionary agenda. But, but not merely a revolutionary agenda, but a revolution against the establishment in Washington and all the media hangers on. Yeah, that's the that's the thing that upsets everybody. 
he's fundamentally delegitimizing the administrative state and all the, the apparatus around it that support the administrative state and big government, however you want to phrase it, the welfare state and the regulatory regime that has stifled American productivity. Trump wants to get rid of that and in the process is going to anger a lot of people. So yeah. they, I, saw, I, I, saw, I saw someone was comparing him to Teddy Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, in some article I was just reading and said, you know, Trump was a progressive Republican like Teddy Roosevelt. And I thought, no, he's not. He's not progressive at all. Almost every single thing Donald Trump's trying to do is to bring us back, it seems to me, to our constitutional origins. Trump, I mean, Trump is looking at the big problems and saying, OK, how can we get government out of the way of private industry? How can we make individuals mm-hmm more responsible how can we deal with all those things far from being progressive thinking government's there to solve all your problems trump wants to make it so that you can solve your own problems and be responsible for solving your own problems and that's as far from progressive as you're going to find he uh, great great blessing to us yet in the um course not yet but in the course of this he is certainly not averse to taking on people who disagree with him you know larry kudlow whom you know you know a little i know a lot um you know seemingly there are differences here on trade and tariffs Though Kudlow has said, you know, I think the president's doing something closer to what I believe. And I think President Trump is altering a little bit, you know, the original notion. But it is still a revolutionary notion, uh, what he's talking about in terms of tariffs and trade. Speak to that a minute. Well, I mean, look, Kudlow's a, a brilliant economic thinker. And so the president may disagree with him. What does the president do but make him the head of his Council of Economic Advisors? And so he's bringing all of Kudlow's great thinking into the White House. That should be a great sign for people. Yeah, a team, but, a team of rival, but not compared to Lincoln lately, has he? Huh? Well, you know, it's... <laughs> I, right, right, right. Go ahead, well, sorry, not to this, distract Yeah, you. no, right. But even then, that team of rivals, when government... The government, of course, was much, much smaller, yeah. to say, to, to say okay. the absolute yeah. least. And, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it's a completely different thing. But on the tariffs, even that was a very responsible beginning and sensible, not just responsible, but sensible beginning when it came to the tariffs because what was he trying to protect he was trying to protect what he thought saw and what is a strategic industry in steel and aluminum now why is that a strategic industry well a country needs fighter aircraft and battleships and tanks and munitions and those are made with steel and aluminum and other things and trump thought as did peter navarro and his other economic thinkers that it's not good enough to just buy those things from people like China and Russia. We may get a lot from Canada and elsewhere, but we cannot rely on that strategic minerals and assets and elsewhere for to China and Russia, our enemies or our competitors, however you want to see them. And so he decides to protect that industry first and says, if we don't do this within five years, meaning his presidency, we're going to lose those industries and they're not. it's not going to be economically competitive. And so he starts with that and, and puts down a marker that I am willing to defend the most important things in our country. And if you don't make better trade deals with us, I'm going to do something else. 
well, if I'm somewhere, if I'm some other country and I'm talking to Trump now, I'm going to take pretty serious that I better make a better deal. If not, he's just going to go it alone, and I don't want to do that. I'd, I'd rather sell my goods to the United States. So that, not, that, that was the right thing to do in and of itself. So good for Trump for doing that. But just as a negotiating tool, and we know he's a deal maker, he has just set a, a marker down that he is willing to do whatever it takes to make a better deal. All right. Do whatever it takes to make a better deal. Do whatever it takes to make a better America. We know that's the bottom line for him, right? Make America great again. But is he making conservatism great again? Or is he changing conservatism? Or is he creating a, something else, a third thing? We talk, used to thinking about liberals and conservatives. Is he fostering uh, a revolution in conservatism, changing what conservatism is? Or is he saying, uh, I'm leaving that uh, dichotomy, conservative, liberal, and, and creating a new thing, operating out of a new paradigm? I, I would say the latter, because okay. uh, modern conservatism appears to me, and but I, I'd be equally interested in what you thought, you being one of the fathers of modern conservatism. Modern conservatism morphed into something more like conserving big government and just making sure that it was as low cost and efficient as possible. And it didn't have at one level, too many disagreements with the edifice that had grown around Washington, the, the, the establishment, as it were. So we were trying to make for a better establishment. Trump seems more to me like Americanism, that he, he looks at things in a genuinely American, common sense way. And he wants to redefine Americanism as law and order with immigration. We're a commercial republic, so he wants to make better trade deals. And we're a beacon of freedom. And so he wants to make sure we have a strong defense. And he sees that as something every American can get behind, because those are the things that made the country great to begin with. And if he if he can remake whatever whatever passes for an intellectual defense of him into Americanism, that itself may be a useful thing that can change both conservatism and liberalism properly understood you know what occurred to me i don't want to distract you uh or digress but I, occurred, what's that book uh, uh claude maybe you can look this up or maybe you know off the top of your head uh brian uh, that our friend david galernter wrote was it the new americanism a third a third great movement um and he said americanism this was a book that came out about two or three years ago i, I remember being struck by the americanism the, the centrality of that idea and word uh in in that book do you happen to recall yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't remember. Okay, okay. but, I, but, I, but I used to be on the board of directors of a little organization. You, you know, here in Southern California, there's something called Knott's Berry Farm. Sure. And it's a theme park, and there was Disneyland, and of course. But the the guy who started Knott's Berry Farm was a passionate, patriotic American. Mm -hmm. Created a, a a replica of Independence Hall there. At Knott's Berry Farm. He started in Los Angeles, I think back in the 40s or 50s, an Americanism Educational League, because he thought in schools way yeah. back in the 40s and 50s, you can believe it, we were losing the sense of what it meant to be an American. Yeah. So good for David. If, I, know, I, 
I seem to recall, I didn't read the book, but I seem to recall it. And I remember reading some arguments that he made and they were all perfectly sensible. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the, Lerner, the Lerner, by the way, should be the president's science advisor. I know. Oh, no. says, yeah. A, a, yeah. As an aside, what a great guy he is. No, I know. And an advisor on other things, really one of the smartest yeah. people I've ever met. This is also a side note, but I'm just curious what you think. Because again, back to the discussion of impulsive and you know spontaneous and all that, this, this new third thing that President Trump is creating, Brian, has he thought it through? Uh, or is this just l- l- life experience? Um, and this is the way it comes out, that he has lived richly, deeply. He's paid attention. He's perceptive. He watches. He looks at things. And this is what comes out from his uh, chest rather than his brain. Yeah, I, I would say he's thought it through. I, I push back on this notion. I think his instincts are very good, the president. But you don't get to where you where he has in life without thinking things through. And he may have lived these things. But he's also internalized them, thought about them, and been able to produce a political movement based on them. That, I think, is a very thoughtful thing. Yeah. So we don't like to think of our presidents as intellectuals, even when they like to think of themselves as intellectuals. And Trump doesn't, by his nature, you know, gravitate toward that kind of articulation of ideas and probably even thinks it doesn't work very well. Yeah. But the the idea that he hasn't thought through these big things belies a certain, I think, just experience of the man as a as a public person. Okay, let's talk. Uh, let's get very specific and talk about foreign policy. I want to tell you, as you can tell, we just finished talking to Governor Sununu. Well, we, you know, we're talking about a lot of things, but I asked him about whether the president was right to signal his interest in meeting with Kim Jong Un. And Sununu said, yes, I asked if he'd advise that as a former chief of staff. He said, sure. And when I said, why? He said, because if you think there's a chance, something like this, if you think there's a chance you're going to blow him up, strike him, hit him hard, you really got to exhaust every other possibility to be able to say we went the extra mile, even the mile people didn't think we should go to. I thought it was an interesting answer. Yeah, I think think that's right. What was the old Churchill... Uh, line better to jaw 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 than to war 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 yeah and, and okay that's what I, what I find kind of annoying about this criticism of first of all i agree i agree with governor sununu i think that's talking to kim jong-un kim jong-un asked to talk good let's talk in that transaction do you really think kim jong-un's going to come off better than donald trump mm-hmm. No, Donald Trump is going to look across the table at him, and Kim Jong-un is going to see the power of the United States sitting there and a man who is not screwing around. And the mere fact that we have the president talk to him will emphasize that we're not screwing around. What annoys me about, I think, the whole North Korea problem we're going through today is that the Clinton, Bush, and Obama administrations treated them not merely with kid gloves, but they established North Korea as a legitimate country and that their nuclear program had, you know, what was a bargaining chip to be discussed. The Clinton, Bush and Obama administrations filled with these skilled diplomats and all these PhDs in international relations have brought us the North Korea we have today, which is one filled with a man who I actually don't think is unstable. He, he may be a bad man, but not a crazy man, who is murderous the way everyone says, but like many a murderous tyrant, can be dealt with and put in his place and checked and defeated if need be. 
And Trump is going through, I think, every diplomatic and military consideration he needs to in order to prevent war or to engage in war, if that's what it takes. This is a far more thoughtful and reasonable way of going about the North Koreans than I think anything we've seen in 30 years. Got so good, for good, good, good for Trump for, for agreeing to it. And I'm pretty confident that we'll at least have checked that box uh, at worst. And it, at best, we will persuade both the North Koreans and the Chinese that we're not screwing around when it comes to, to uh, North Korea. Gutsy, too. Yeah, very gutsy. Very gutsy. And look, because despite what you say, you don't know. You don't know. You don't know what will happen. Uh, of course not. I mean, no, I no. just, I, uh, yeah, I, no, I was just, not. first thing I was thinking is, can we get extra Secret Service, please? You know, these guys, you know, throw around poison and they, you know, they do all sorts of really bizarre, crazy things, whether he's crazy or not. But, but I mean, it's it's risky under the fronts. Well, there's the handshake, boy. There he is, shaking hands with a murderous dictator. You know, I mean, we know what the, we know what the criticism will be, and and we don't know. We don't know what Kim Jong Un would uh, have up his sleeve, if anything. But uh, yeah. no, I admire it too. You know, I admire it yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. He shook he shook President Xi's hand, and he shook Putin's hand. So yeah, there's press. Yeah, right? yeah. Is is Kim Jong Un worse than them? No, those are murderous dictators too. No, no, no one complains when complained when Obama shook both their hands. Mm-hmm. He's not likely to bow either, right? Not, and no, not likely to bow. <laughs> Thinking and, of Obama, remember? Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. And, and and also appears to put his have put his military on the path of developing the necessary plans to actually go and take out North Korea if need be. He's accelerating our missile defense when it comes to North Korea, which has to be giving both the Chinese and the Russians fits. So I think North Korea was a test that the Chinese were putting Trump through. And so far, he's passing that test with flying colors. The audience, as they've listened to you over the last year, has uh, come to appreciate your your views, your wisdom, your insight. The people agree, the people disagree. You get a lot of commentary on it. And everyone agrees you're, you're very bullish on, on Donald Trump, as you were early on. You were one of the people who persuaded me, you and uh, my son, <laughs> double team me. And persuaded me, and uh, then I, you know, then I saw it with my own eyes, realized it. But what keeps you up at night about his tenure? What do you worry about? What can derail him? You remember you and I, and uh, actually uh, my son, were in a conversation with a very high-ranking person, influential person, who said, "I worry about impeachment. I worry about resignation. Though I don't think that'll happen. I don't see him quitting, uh, and I worry about other things. What can what can derail?" Uh, quite apart from, say, let's say the 2018 Democratic House, uh, if that should that occur. But what do you worry about that could derail this engine, this this freight train? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I'm actually partly inspired by the fact that he's been so courageous up to now. I don't see him backing off any of that. I don't so much worry about Trump quitting or being impeached. If they ever tried to impeach Trump, just that process alone, I think he would demolish the media and the and the Democratic politicians. And it, it may actually strangely be an interesting fight that would remind us again what government's supposed to do and not do and really draw some serious political fault lines. The worry is that the Republicans yeah. in Congress yeah. somehow somehow lose don't heart. Mm-hmm. well they lose heart. They lack courage. 
if they think they're if the Republicans in Congress think their political future is different than Donald Trump's, yeah. they're crazy. Yeah, because they're all in this thing together. What is disappointing to me is that they don't embrace Donald Trump as a vehicle to advance every conservative policy agenda that they have been putting forth for the past 30 years. Please name me a conservative idea that Donald Trump would not embrace and would not advance to make America great again. Okay. And yet and yet this Congress seems incapable of doing that. They've been on the defensive. Thank God for Devin Nunes yeah. fighting all this yeah. Russia business and all this yeah. de- deep state stuff. But where are where are all the great conservative ideas we've been pushing? Where is that legislation? Where are those big public debates? Why aren't they holding hearings on how how the regulatory state has hurt the economy? Yeah. So many good things that could be done are not being done. That's the disappointment. And I think Trump's going to succeed without them. Bringing in Larry Kudlow is going to send the kind of signal to the markets and to business people that America is open for business. If you're an entrepreneur, you're going to be very confident about the future. Let me come back to my dire uh, scenario or uh, array of them. Uh, Mueller, I mean, uh, assume the worst kind of thing, really the only recourse if there's some accusations of collusion or which I which I doubt or obstruction, which I doubt is for them to go to impeachment uh, and just jumping way ahead of the game with a Democrat Congress. You might impeach him. There's not a way you'd convict him because you're not going to have, I don't think, 66 senators under any 67 senators under any scenario unless those Republicans go so wobbly. Right. You with me so far? Right, 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 right. Yeah. Is and I hate to bring this up. You and I talked about it the other day. Is he, is it is it more of a problem for him to worry about the Stormy Daniels of the world? If there's a there there, and if there are more there there, does that matter? You know, I don't think it does. I don't think it matters. Uh, I've met more everyday Americans who think, look, Donald Trump was a, a New York playboy, three times married. We knew who he was. We saw him on TV. We read his books. We know the man. We still voted for him for president. We did it because. We looked at him, and he loved the country and wanted to make it great again. Whereas they look at the Democrats and Hillary Clinton, and they thought, these people don't love the country. Boy, that was sure and, true in Mumbai, wasn't it? And what, what she said in India, huh? I mean, it was, wasn't that just kind of bizarre and sad? <laughs> I thought it was just sad and pathetic that she should act that way toward Americans. And I saw Claire McCaskill distancing herself from that. I mean, maybe she's up for yeah. re-election. But yeah. still, there's something unseemly about looking at Americans the way Hillary Clinton does yeah. and the Democrats do. Or looking at but, wi- how about looking at women that way? You know you know how Elaine off, Bennett off, does off, every, awful, every awful. single thing I tell her to do. You know, Elaine does just snaps to attention, right? Right, right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I was with I was with one of our lawyers the other day, and he said, "Look, I understand." He was Cuban, um, Cuban American. He said, "Look, I understand what it's like to live under tyranny." And I said, "What are you married?" Yeah, okay. you know. <laughs> you know yeah. the, the idea that men run the world seems a little far fetched for anybody who's married. Yeah, as we as we well know. <laughs> well, they had us this study. I got I got to interrupt you because I had this study on. It was C. I care about C. CNN or MSNBC, I'm shopping around, but they said, well, if there's actually a point to what she was saying, which is that, you know, women's political views correlate very strongly with uh, their husbands. 
Well, there's another way to present the findings of that study. The uh, political views of husbands very well correlate to the views of their wives. Yeah, even more. Yeah, even even more so. A couple tend tend to agree on these things. Tend to not all not all the time. You've got Carvel and Madeline, but but they do tend to agree because they spend time together and they talk these things through as a couple because they spend time together talking to each other. No, no, no. But back to your earlier point. Yes, please. The, the Clintons and, and all of their bad behavior with Bill as president destroyed the public morality of this country. Yeah. There's still morality, but the public morality, the idea that human beings are supposed to behave cer- a certain way, they destroyed all that. And so now everyone wants to criticize Donald Trump. Yeah. And is it the job of a New York Playboy businessman, who, by the way, as I keep on saying, is doing a great job as your president, but is it his job to renew the moral and religious spirit of the United States? That's a, that, that, on the one hand, would be unfair. On the other hand, the guy comports himself as president in a delightful way. Yeah, I was, he, he respects religion, respects the family. I, I was going to say, yeah, I mean, he could. I mean, I, you know, uh, every saint has a has a past. Every sinner has a future, you know. I mean, maybe by speaking to it, by talking about it, I don't mean by talking about, you know, his playboy life, but by talking about the need for such things and pointing out, you know, I fall very short of this. I thought one of the most moving things he, he did during the campaign, I mentioned this the other day to Tony Perkins, you know, our friend Tony Perkins, Family right. Research Council, uh, was when he thanked the evangelical community for his, their support, largely, and said, I, I you know, I, I really didn't know and I didn't expect it and I don't know if that I'm worthy of it. You know, spoken from the heart and sincerely, yes, that can open up a discussion about such things and, you know, we have had... Uh, we have had enlightenment and moral enlightenment from more unlikely places than even Donald Trump. In our oh, oh, I, oh, if I wasn't clear, I totally agree. Yeah. I, I think what Trump is doing and saying and his defense of America is itself an amazing moral act. Yeah, I do, too. More, cor- more courageous and more effective in recovering that mm-hmm. moral sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just don't like the idea that because he was a sinner as we all are, that he's somehow supposed to be held to a greater account than a Bill Clinton or a George Bush or Barack Obama. Yeah. That seems that that seems crazy to me. Don't, don't you love the retrospective on this, though, that the liberals are doing, which is, well, we're reevaluating Clinton. Well, it's a little late. You know, where were you when we needed you? You know, but I mean, they, right. you see his ratings as president now have dropped like 11 places because people say, well, he really shouldn't have been doing that to women. Uh, and by the way, it, I think it makes a pretty big difference if you're doing that when you're uh, president of the United States and you're in the White House and it's a young intern. I mean, I think, and then you're lying under oath. I think, I think those things make a pretty, pretty substantial difference too from uh, from what President Trump is accused of. Of course, and it shows that his what intellectual frauds these people really yeah. are. Yeah, you know yeah. that that only only now do they turn on Clinton now that Hillary is has one foot in the political grave, as it were. Right. Good Lord. So, very bad. Thank you very much, uh, as always. And we're going to get, I know we'll get a lot of mail. We get a lot of reaction to you. There's not, the, your, your, your view is, shall I say, strong. Well, yeah, partly it's informed by my, my good friend, John Marini, uh-huh. who is a, a, a senior fellow at sure. the Claremont Institute, sure. a, a public intellectual of the first order, and his writings on this 
are very powerful. By the way, if I could plug something, he he has an article in the the, uh, latest Claremont Review of Books about reviewing a book on on bureaucracy. But if you ever want to read what's going on when it comes to bureaucracy and an intellectual way of thinking about what Trump is trying to do, read that piece by John Marini in the latest Claremont Review of Books. It gives an intellectual framework, and I know you're your your listeners are more intellectual or intellectually minded yep. uh, than the average yep. uh, listener. Yes, they are. Okay, yeah. is it as good as his treatment of the man who shot Liberty Valance? Uh Yes, actually, it is. Okay. But look, it, he's I just as a closing note. He saw in Trump a man who had the courage to defend America and was willing to run for president and go after the establishment that that is a you know he started there and if you can start with courage i think you can achieve many great things and john pointed that out and so far trump has lived up to that that high hope and if i seem bullish on trump it's because every time i i think he's going to do something or do the right thing he turns out and does it yeah and it may take a while to get some of these big things done but he's on the path to do it. So let's join him in that enterprise rather than, you know, snipe at him or, or oppose him. I'm going to make sure, or I can't make sure, but I'm going to do everything in my power to see that the president of the United States gets to hear what you have, you and I have just talked about. Well, that'd be great. I'll try to get to him. He's a busy guy, you know. But he talks to a lot of people because if you watch enough Fox, as I do. We talk, he talks to you. I mean, you talk to the Well, once, maybe twice. But uh, he talked to my brother once and thought he was talking to me until my brother corrected him. <laughs> and my brother said, you're, you think you're talking to my brother? He said, oh, yeah, no, you're not, you're not, you're not Bill. He said, no, I'm Bob. And Bob said, no, you should talk to Bill, and he doesn't charge for the hour, you know. Right. So, but uh, no, no, but, but um, I don't mean to uh, diminish this. Um, your support is longstanding. It's genuine, sincere, and your arguments are very, very strong. And, um, you know, I think I think this, this White House, whatever one thinks of it, and I happen to like it, and I like this president and admire him, needs strong defenders. And um, they're blessed to have you as one. Thank you, Brian Kenny. Thank you, Bill. All right, that was the president of the American Strategy Group, Brian Kennedy. And that just about wraps it up for this week. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett, and you can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. You know I'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. That's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up to you next week.